Well, let's pray together this morning. Father, as, uh, as we now center our attention towards the preaching of your word, we pray that you would meet us in this text from Genesis 4 and into Genesis chapter 5. We pray, God, that you, Holy Spirit, would speak in and through me. And Father, that you would use my preparation time to, to, um, to edify and to teach this congregation and those who are joining us um, this morning. And Father, we pray that, that in your word we might be enriched, and uh, Holy Spirit, that you might illumine this text to us, that, that, it, that, that it would make sense, and Lord, that we would have an ability to take a very, very old and ancient text and, and make application into our own lives here in the 21st century. Your word is living and active, Lord God. It, it continues to, to move and to convict and to challenge us and to encourage us and to strengthen us. And we pray that, that you, would, you would utilize your word in that way today, even as we do this virtually. So Lord, meet us uh, this morning. We ask, we, we pray, God, for our congregation, for our friends here at LifePoint, uh, feeling out of touch at, at times with one another, Lord God, and so unable to, to come together and yet still caring for one another and trying to love one another as best we can. So I pray for this congregation of LifePoint Church, and I pray for unity and for, uh, Lord, uh, your outpouring of your spirit upon each individual and family. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and other congregations who are trying to connect with their flock, with their people, Lord God, with, with their community in the same way that we're trying to do this. And so, God, I pray for them. I ask that you would minister uh, to these churches and to these brothers uh, who are leading and to uh, these uh, members of these congregations who are serving and trying to, to remain connected. Minister to them, God. Be gracious to your church here in Indianapolis across the United States and abroad, we pray. Lord, we pray for the, for the persecuted peoples and for those who are suffering even more um, intently than we are here in the States. And we ask you to minister your grace and your mercy to them. We pray for our missionaries and pray, God, that you would minister to them and pour out your spirit upon them, Lord God. Uh, many of them are struggling uh, in, 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 on the field, and, and, and many of them are struggling right here in Indianapolis as well, Lord God, as, as funding seems to be decreasing and as, uh, as life and ministry continues on, uh, albeit in, in a different format. So we pray for them. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Wheeler Mission and Servants Heart and the Sun Foundation and other places, God, where it's more a location that people are coming to, where resources are scarce where space sometimes is scarce, where people have great needs, and we ask you to minister to them uh, today. Father, we love you, we worship you, and we commit ourselves to you now. Meet us in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm back to a little bit more of a normal format here this morning, standing up rather than sitting down and, and uh, trying to, uh, to approach things again just a little bit more as we hopefully will be seeing uh, here very, very soon as we gather back together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I was, I was thinking uh, this morning about why this is so different, and obviously I'm preaching to an empty room. Pastor David is the only one with me here uh, today, uh, so I'm preaching to an almost empty room, and there's... there's um, there's a strangeness to that, but I, but I think I've narrowed it down to what is really the strangest part of this for me is that 
I'm so used to standing up to preach after engaging in worship with, with you all, with the collective body of Christ, and being here early on a Sunday morning and, and being in the sound booth and listening to the choir and listening to the worship team uh, uh, practice and, and uh, get ready for worship. And so engaging in worship, even as I listen to them walk through what they're going to do that morning, and then obviously as we gather together, engaged in worship, and then coming up, and then praying, and then getting into the Word. And so, so I think I've kind of figured out why it is that it seems very odd for me to just kind of jump into the pulpit like this and, and begin, begin these messages and begin to pray. Uh, so uh, obviously trying to, to uh, do some worship prior to coming in and engaging in this. But I miss you. I miss being a part of that. Each one of the guys that have preached here have said the same thing. It's genuine. Um, it, it is... It is it is strange to do it this way, but this is the way that God has allowed us to do it for now. And so we'll continue with this as long as we have to do that and continue to pray that God will give us an opportunity to gather back together again as brothers and sisters in Christ, collectively, corporately as the body of Christ very, very soon. Today I want to get directly into, into our text. We're going to be at the end of Genesis chapter 4 and then through Genesis chapter 5. So a pretty large section, but I do want to read the whole thing, and so I want to get directly into that. We're, we're beginning what we call a Toledoth of Adam. These are the generations of, if you remember from many, many weeks back now as we began this series, we're going to walk through these 10 Toledoths in, in the book of Genesis. And here we are in the second one. These are the generations of Adam. The first Toledoth were the generations of the heaven and the earth as God created the heavens and the earth. Now we begin to see the generations of Adam and Eve and, and uh, their offspring, their progeny. And uh, so that's where we're going to be at this morning. Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 25 and all the way through chapter 5. So I'm standing already. You can certainly stand at home if you would like to stand and join with me as we read from God's Word. Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 25, says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, this is the book of the generations of Adam, starting at chapter 5. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. 
When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And so friends, here we go again. There's a bit of a hard reset or a restart here. In other words, in Genesis chapter 4, it tells us at the beginning there, Genesis chapter 4 begins like this. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. We now have another start. Adam knows his wife again. She bears a son and calls his name Seth. I hope you see in that, without even me pointing out this, uh, the structure of Genesis chapter 5. We see a clear poetic type of structure here as it runs through this genealogy and demonstrates for us the lives uh, of each person, the, the important, if we want to put it that way, name of a son that was, that was born in this line, other sons and daughters born, and each of these people die, with the exception, obviously, of Enoch. We'll get into that here in a few moments. But Seth is born, and he is named the one who is appointed, Seth. Or a new beginning is another Hebraism, we call it, a way that the Hebrews would speak as they, as they see this name. It is a new beginning or a foundation. And this becomes a poignant reminder, not only of the murder that took place, but also of the hope that, that Eve and Adam have, that there is going to be a new beginning. There is a new start to these things. And so although murder and death has entered into the equation already, there still will be better days to come. And so Nate showed us last week this family line of Cain. They're going to continue to play an important role in human history, obviously. They are a race of inventors. They are, uh, are sinful but they're also creative. They bring intelligence and resources uh, with them. They live these incredibly, incredibly long lives, and that's going to lead to many, many years of hardened hearts and sinfulness, but also to many years to build up a worldly type of wisdom. Animal husbandry will come from them. Creativity and entertainment, uh, metallurgy will come from, from this line. 
However, I think it's important for us to note here that at least as it relates to salvation history, the family line of Cain are irrelevant. They're irrelevant. They will continue to play a role in, in, in the building of human culture and the building of, of, human, of human history. But as it comes to salvation and the storyline of salvation, they become virtually, I suppose we should say, irrelevant. They are not part of the storyline. Cain's line will demonstrate the need for salvation. They will demonstrate the need for salvation. It's only Seth's line that will bring about the hope of salvation. It's only Seth's line that will bring about salvation itself. And so God is setting about this task of preserving a line through Seth that will ultimately lead to relief from the curse and the hope of a Savior that will bring not only a hope from this curse, but hope uh, from death and, and life out of death, and ultimately, as we now know on this side of the cross, hope for eternal life as well. And so there's a parting of ways here. The separating of the family lines of the earth begins now here. Both lines originate with Adam as the head, but as verse 5, 1 tells us, this is the book of the generations of Adam, clearly now indicate that only one line now is essential to the story. These are the generations of Adam. Well, we've already seen that Adam has, has born a, a, a son, sons. We've already seen that Eve is a part of that story as well. But now we start again. Here are the generations of Adam. We've already seen part of one generation, one line. That line brings trouble. Now we're going to see the important line, at least to the story of salvation. Cain's line is given over to autonomy. They're given over to self-rule. Seth's line is given over to representing God, representing God to the earth, representing God to the world. And therefore, they're going to know the blessing of God as well. And so we're only in the first generation here, right? We're in this first generation, and yet sin is firmly now embedded into this storyline. It's right there, and it will continue to be in this storyline. It will not be removed until ultimately the return of Jesus Christ. Sin will continue to be a part of that story. Lemek's song from 423, chapter 423, kind of oozes this hatred this almost desire for sin, and it indicates that at least to Lamech, vengeance is now a form of duty. This is what we do as human beings. We bring vengeance on those who harm us. If I've been, if I've been harmed, if this young warrior came to me and I had to slay him, so be it. And if anybody has a problem with that, there will be a curse upon them that is worse than the curse that, that, that uh, was upon the, the first murderer, right? The, the, this first murder. This will, this will be a great curse. And that curse will simply be, I will be avenged. We will be avenged. We will make sure that we right wrongs. There's an incredible amount of autonomy here, right? Self-rule. Nobody will tell me what to do. And so, friends, the Bible records human perversion as a fact, we need not make excuses for it. We need not uh, have to feel like we have to defend the scriptures when the scriptures tell us the realities of human life and human existence. Evil is something that is actually at work in our world. Evil exists. 
Evil exists, and there may be some people who say, well, no, it, it can't because, because we originated from nothing, we're going nowhere, and so evil is only what we call it, only what we designate it, only what maybe those who are in power say is evil. There may be some truth to that as how we designate things as human beings, but the reality is that evil itself exists. Evil personified in Satan and in the demonic world. It exists in our world. And the Bible makes no excuses for that, nor does it apologize for that. The Cainites dominate. And by the exertion of their rights, they get to define what is good in the world's eyes. But the fact is that they are predominantly found to be on the side of evil in the biblical narrative. They are predominantly found to be on the side of evil. Sinners that we are, humankind, we sin as much as we can. And at least on this side of heaven, it is only tamped down by God's common grace in this world. It is tamped down by, by governmental agencies. It is tamped down by culture and society. It is tamped down, we now know, by God's saints, by God's people in and around and through the human race and in the world. By God's common grace, sin is accounted for to some extent, but it will continue to be with us. Humankind, given the, the prerogative to do so, will sin as much as we can. We will only be contained by God. And by increasing our power, we're going to increase our capacity to sin. Look how that has happened throughout human history. And I don't have to go through a long litany to simply say, let's just look at the 20th century itself at the way that we were able to destroy people on, on, a, on epic scales, on, on mega scales. Some have called the 20th century the century of mega death. And it's because we could do that. Whatever the century, could we essentially uh, uh, annihilate a people group? In, in four or five years' time, how is it that humankind could go about bringing about the death of over 50 million human beings? It's because as our power increases, our capacity to sin increases along with it. And so from this point forward in the narrative of Scripture, the growth of the earth's population is accompanied by an ever-increasing corruption, ever-increasing sinfulness embedded into the human story, except where we see the supernatural work of God. Except for where we see God engaging and supernaturally working in human history. Supernaturally working in the life of Enoch, which breaks off this narrative in Genesis chapter 5 and tells us that he didn't die. Right? Everybody else is dying, but Enoch isn't dying. Unless we see God supernaturally working in human history, we see an ever-increasing corruption that goes in with it. And so in Seth's line... After the birth of, of Enosh, meaning from the, the line of Seth, people begin to call on the name of the Lord, the scripture tells us here in 4.26. People begin to call on, on the name of the Lord. Worship now begins in earnest. Worship begins in earnest. Submission to God now and the line of Seth is the order of the day. It doesn't tell us that there are nobody in the line of Seth who are sinners. We, we know that's not true. Every one of them's dying except for Enoch, including Seth. But in this line, we see that submission to God is the order of the day, not a demand to seize life and to take it for what we can get from it. Even when they were given hundreds of years, it appears, to live out 
these lives. And so, friends, I think there's a lesson for us here. We're beginning to see now already in Genesis chapter 5 what it means to please God, what it means to truly walk with God, to have fellowship with God. We see that personified in, in Enoch. To be pleasing in the sight of God is to have fellowship with God. It means to walk with God. And that is culminated now in the seventh uh, from, from Adam, the seventh on the, from the line of Seth in the life of, of Enoch. He is, the, he is the exact opposite of Lamech. He is the exact opposite in terms of, of Lamech wanting self-rule, autonomy, and Enoch wanting fellowship with God. He wants to please God. He wants to walk with God, and he does so. And because of that, he knows the blessing of God. There's a lesson for us here because it's an early lesson in the Bible that it's important for us to, to, to inculcate, if I can say that, a relationship with God, a, a, a relationship by which, which we are pleasing to God. We, we walk in a way that demonstrates that we have fellowship with God. And when we do that, we know the blessing of God. We know the favor of God. And yet here in chapter 5, we see this death dirge, don't we? We see this, this story, this almost song, this poem of, of, of death. And this hard reset becomes very, very clear here. There's a brief return to the beginning when God created man. When God created man, chapter 5, verse 1, he made him in the likeness of God. Well, we've already heard that story, right? We're hearing it again now. Male and female, he created them. We know this. Now we're being told that again. He blesses them. And he names them, male and female, man. Now, again, this is very, very problematic for, for feminism, for new wave feminism, even for some, some believers. This idea that we would call male and female man. But this is what the scripture teaches us. It doesn't mean man better than woman. It simply means God created humankind Right? He created man and woman, and then he calls them man. They have this shared experience with one another. They're created in the image of God. And, and, and even though we are different, we have a common creator. We have a common destiny. We have, we have a common experience in life. This is vital for us to know. Outside of the church and inside of the church, we share a commonality man and woman does. We share a creator. We share a destiny that we're heading to. And many of us are going to choose to do that with a spouse, with, a, with, a, with a, a counterpart in our life, someone to share life with, someone to, to, uh, to procreate with as God blesses us. And for the vast majority of people, that will be the reality. There will be a procreation that takes place from that. We will bear children in our image, in our likeness. We'll share this common experience and this life and this destiny together. And so chapter 5 kind of restarts the whole cycle again. We've now told you about Cain's line. That line is irrelevant as it comes to the story of salvation. Let us introduce to you now the generations of Adam through Seth and let us kind of restart this story all over again. And so we get this genealogy that, that, uh, that begins here in chapter 5. We're going to see multiple genealogies in the scriptures. These genealogies are very, very important to the Jewish people. 
They're very, very important to them, which is why we'll see them in multiple different places throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as well. It's important for them to know who fathered whom and and who fathered that person and who fathered that person all the way back through the lines. To know where they came from helps them to understand where they're going. It helps them to understand who their God is that has blessed them in such a way that they have this long history. And that they have this hope for a future. So what do we see in chapter 5? Well, obviously we see multiple different things, but let me break it down, I think, into three things. First, it shows us humankind's value. That's what chapter 5 shows us. Humans are named and they are remembered, right? They are known by God and they are known by, by their own people. They are named, they are remembered, there are genealogies, there are stories, there are histories to each one of them. And all these histories are incredibly brief, They are histories. These people existed. They lived lives on the earth. They lived and they died. It shows us humankind's value. We don't get genealogies for livestock. We don't get genealogies for for the animal kingdom. We don't get genealogies for for trees and, and for other things. Human beings have developed some of these genus species and things like that. We don't get them in the scriptures, but we do get them for human beings. It shows us humankind's value. Second, it shows us that Seth is appointed to bring about a line that is ultimately going to bring relief from this curse, from this curse of death. It's going to bring ultimately relief to us in salvation, in salvation history. Seth's line will bring about God's plan and will ultimately lead to Noah, who becomes a great deliverer, who if we read the other genealogies of Scripture, is going to lead ultimately to Jesus Christ, to our Savior. And third, it shows us that death reigns in this world. Here's the negative side to Genesis chapter 5. It certainly shows us that death reigns in the world. This is a brutal refrain that we have to say over and over and over again, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, over and over and over again. It's written that way to demonstrate the harshness and the reality of the curse. Only in Enoch do we see a clear break from this death song, from this death dirge that is laid out for us in Genesis chapter 5. And so we see that people are living really, really long lives and don't have a lot of time to go into that this morning, and so I just simply won't. We may address this at some point, but people are living really, really long lives, and there's really nothing biblically, textually, that would tell us that we should read this some other way. Something's happened here at the very beginning The curse is taking effect, but there seems to be a slow winding down from from paradise, from Eden, until we get to the point where God will eventually say, I'm going to limit human beings' lives to 120 years. But even then, he doesn't say immediately, right now, it's never going to happen, because we read in Scripture that there are still others after that who will live beyond 120 years. People are living really, really long lives, and you say, well, explain that. And my answer is, I can't explain it. I don't know. I do believe it because I don't think there's any other reason, there's nothing for us to to gain by trying to somehow explain it away. And I know there are some people who say, well, we know better. It's not part of our experience. People don't live those kind of lives, right? A hundred years is a long time for a life today. And a hundred years seems to have been a long time for a life a hundred years ago and a thousand years uh, ago. And so I can't explain it. And we say, well, it's not part of our experience. And my only answer to that, I guess, friends, is simply this. Dead people coming back to life is not part of our experience either. And yet we've pinned our hope on that in Jesus Christ. 
And so sometimes we just have to believe. We just are called to believe and to say, we can't explain it, but that seems to be what the scriptures are clearly teaching us here. People are living really, really long lives and allow some people to become very, very hard and very, very sinful. And it's allowing some, at least in the line of Seth, to demonstrate a really, really godly existence. And particularly in Enoch, an existence that leads to him just simply being taken away by God. And so this refrain of long lives followed by death, it's abruptly halted in Enoch in verses 21 through 24. There's this very, very brief description of Enoch. He walks with God and he was not for God took him. And we may say, well, what does that mean? What, is it, what was his life like? Why don't we know more? Again, I don't know why we don't know more. This is what the scriptures tell us. Other than, than, other than being named in a few genealogies, we really do not know much about, about Enoch. We know about him from Hebrews chapter 11 as well, that chapter of faith that tells us that Enoch was one who, who confirms the reality of a, of a life after death for us was one that demonstrated his, his, his faithfulness to God. He was pleasing to God, and because of that, he was taken into glory by God. And then in Jude chapter 14, it tells us, not chapter 14, I'm sorry, Jude, verses 14 and 15, it tells us that Enoch's role was as a prophet of God, or at least part of what his role was for those 365 years, was as a prophet of God. And so with Seth's line now, people are beginning to call on the name of the Lord and what is, what is uh, uh, Enoch doing? He's proclaiming that name. And that, that term, to call on the name of the Lord, can also simply mean they proclaim the Lord. The people are now proclaiming the Lord. Enoch was a proclaimer of God. He was a proclaimer. He was a prophet of God. He proclaimed the glory of God. And, and rightfully so. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe there. It's a great name to proclaim. It's a great name to live in and under and through and with because the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous, we run to the name of the Lord and we find safety and delivery there. And Enoch was a proclaimer of God. And so we know that Enoch walked with God, and to walk with him certainly means to have some sort of agreement with him, to have fellowship with God. Amos tells us that, that the Lord does not walk with anyone that he has no pleasure in, with whom he has no pleasure, God is not going to walk. Amos chapter 3, can two walk together unless they're in agreement? All right, so somewhat of a rhetorical question he's, the, the prophet Amos is asking there in chapter 3. Can two walk together unless they're in agreement? He's not saying can they, can they brush shoulders and walk down the aisle. He means can they be in fellowship with one another? Can they have an enriched life together? Can they live uh, long-term with one another unless there's some sort of an agreement? And so the, the fellowship between Enoch and God is a sweet fellowship. For Enoch... Familiarity does not breed contempt. One might say, well, goodness, after 300 years, you might decide, look, I want to have fellowship with somebody else, right? This is, a, this is a nice person. This is someone that's good to be around, but 300 years, come on. I want to be with somebody else, but that's not for Enoch. He has a fellowship with God. He walks with God. And because he walks with God, he knows God. There's a sweetness to that fellowship. Even after 300 years, there's a sweetness to the fellowship. So much so that God just, he just walks into glory. He just walks right into glory. Two people that we know of historically who do not experience death, Enoch and Elijah. Elijah is, 
is transported into heaven with chariots of fire, this, this kind of almost a, a violent taking away from the earth and, and, into, and into heaven. Enoch, it appears, at least from the language, simply just walks right in to glory. There's just a sweet fellowship there with God. And so, so that type of, of, of familiarity does not breed contempt for, for Enoch. Friends, Israel was called to walk with God. We are called to walk with our God, to be in agreement with Him. And, and, and to be in agreement with God simply means that we're going to be in disagreement with the world, right? Jesus told us that. If they love uh, if we love him, then the world is going to hate us. This is the reality of life in, in the body of Christ. But to have, have fellowship with Christ is to be in agreement with him. And to be in agreement with Christ is to be, in some sense at least, in disagreement with the world. The Apostle Paul fleshes that out in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 16. He says this, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord exists between Christ and Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, Paul says. What agreement is there with us and idols and idolatry in our world? What agreement is there between us and Satan? Because there is a, there is a um, well, there's a disagreement here, Right? There's a, there's a difference in viewpoint. There's a difference in worldview, we might say. We have a different end in sight, a different end in mind. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, it is eternal. We have a different destiny than the world. And therefore, we are in disagreement with them. As God has said, Paul goes on to say, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is a fellowship. This is walking with God, friends. This is a sweet uh, a union with Christ, living in Christ. And here I think is our great struggle which in fact should be no struggle at all, but it is because we are human beings, right? We still struggle even though we know God, even though we know the goodness and the graciousness and the richness of God, I think we struggle with this. Breaking with the world is a hard thing, even though the world is full of lies and liars. It's hard to break with the world. It's hard at times to embrace fellowship with God even though we know that hope lies only in God. Isn't that a strange phenomenon? We know the truth, and Jesus has said that truth will set us free, and yet we struggle against the truth. I do it. You do it. It was an incredible struggle for me when I first came to know Christ as a teenager, an incredible struggle to, to, to break away from, from what the world had and, and, to, and to desire fellowship with God. Very, very difficult for me. You're struggling with it today. I continue to struggle with it. You young people are struggling with it, aren't you? You're struggling with it in your schools and in and, and, and your co-ops and you're struggling with it in, in your relationships. You're struggling with that concept, breaking with the world with whom we are in disagreement with and having fellowship with God. You older people are struggling with it as well. Whether or not you're like me in your 50s or your 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s, or if you live to be 300, you won't. But if you could, as, as Enoch walked 300 years 
with God. There's a struggle for us to break away from the world. It is the reality of life, even the reality of life in Christ. By God's goodness and by God's grace, uh, Christ overcomes that in us, and we, we learn to have fellowship with him and to desire that fellowship with him. We don't learn it perfectly, but we do learn it. Friends, relief from the curse is what we're looking for. Relief from the curse is what humankind has been trying to do. And so let's look now at the climax of chapter 5. It will serve as a segue into the next major portion of the, the narrative in our, in our gener, uh, Genesis text as we go into chapter 6 next week. And so in Genesis chapter 5, verses uh, 29... Through 32. Let me just, let me just uh, read these one more time here. Genesis chapter 5. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to start at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathers a son. He calls his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this one, this Noah, he's going to bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Right? Part of that curse is that reality of having to work the soil now that is working against us. Now Lamech is going to live many more years. He's going to father Noah, and Noah's going to live 500 years, and then he's going to father Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then we're going to, Japheth, and we're going to move into Genesis chapter, chapter 6 here. So one of the primary goals of humankind is to seek relief from the effects of the curse. It's what science, religion, governments, cultures, societies, at least the best of them, are trying to do. They're trying to relieve our, our struggles, our pain, our agony in this world. And that desire we see here from Genesis chapter 5 has been with us from the very beginning. It was Lamech's desire when his wife gave birth to Noah. Noah was indeed a righteous man. He also, the scriptures will tell us, will walk with God. And although he and his family, they would bring about another kind of hard reset to humankind and to life on earth, Noah's also a sinner. And we're going to learn about that as we move on through the Genesis narrative as well. So he's not perfect. Enoch shows us there's more to come. Noah's going to be a great deliverer, as will Abram. We'll know him as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah. Great deliverers, great men of God, and others as well. But relief from this curse that we see so clearly here in Genesis chapter 5, and really at the, in the middle part of Genesis chapter 4 as well, is making itself known there. The relief from that curse it only comes through one man. It only comes through Jesus Christ. And those of you who are, who are at LifePoint, you already know this, right? You've been told this, and you know it from your own reading, and you know it from your own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope from this, or relief from the curse, only comes in Jesus Christ. And so as we close, Romans chapter 5 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So here's our common lot. We all sin. Death has spread to us, not only because of Adam, but because we're also sinners by nature. And so death has spread to all of us, Romans 5 tells us. But it ends, Romans 5, on a positive note. But where sin increased, many of you know this one, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? As sin increases, God's grace abounds more and more, Romans 5 tells us, so that as sin reigned 
in death, as it reigns in death and the curse of death, grace might also reign through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, leading to eternal life in Christ. So as sin increases, God's grace abounds even more throughout human history, right? Through the storyline of salvation, it culminates in Jesus Christ, where sin has abounded, where sin has increased and increased and increased and continues to increase. The grace of God abounds to us in Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and I give them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one will take them from me because they know me. We have fellowship with one another. We walk together. They hear my voice. They respond to my voice. I love them. They love me. And I give them eternal life. I give them a blessing that breaks the curse that breaks the death dirge of, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. There is hope in Jesus Christ. There is eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is where we're shooting for, friends. This is where we're aiming. This is what the story of salvation is about in the scriptures. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about hope in Christ. And I want you to know that hope in Christ. I don't want you to be caught in the death song. I don't want to be caught in the death song. There's hope here. There's hope in the line of Seth. There's hope in, in, through, through Noah, the great deliverer. There's hope through that line as it continues to go on through the people of Israel and through the men and women that God has appointed to bring us life and hope, ultimately in Jesus Christ. This is where we find our hope. Set your hope, friends, on Jesus Christ. Know this, that although sin is increasing on the face of the earth, God sets about the task of providing and preserving a godly lineage through Seth. Ultimately, God is preserving a line that will bring about a Savior, not just one who will break the toil of our hands like Noah would do, not just a great king like David, not just a great prophet like Elijah, but a savior, the son of God, the king of the world, the creator of all things, hope and life in Jesus Christ. Friends, place your wholehearted trust in Christ. He has promised to break the curse. He has promised us everlasting life in Jesus. God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for salvation. Thank you, God, that you have demonstrated to us how all this began, where it was heading, and how it ends in Christ. I pray, God, for those of us who are watching this today, that it will end for us properly, that it will end for us on a happy note, as Romans 5 does, that where sin increased in our lives, grace abounded more and more in Christ. And therefore, God, we have found hope in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that for all of us as we enter into this Sunday and into this week. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.